Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. I'm Dan Moss, and today I'm talking to Dr. Ben Lohmeyer. Ben is a lecturer in social work at Flinders University. Welcome, Ben. Thank you for uh, coming today. Oh, great. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, Ben, tell me a bit about your work with future social workers at Flinders University. Sure. Uh, So I joined the social work team at Flinders at the start of this year, just over six months. And my job is to teach the uh, social policy topics. Uh, So that sounds super boring at the surface level, which is what most students expect as well when they come in. Uh, I say this regularly on the kind of conversations I have with students and most of them don't come in thinking they want to work in policy or you know all that sort of paperworky stuff but the approach for the topic is actually a lot more fun than that we talk about big ideas and big questions because that's what policy is about at, at the social policy level right it's about us thinking about how do we all live together and work together and how do we make this work when we've got issues like healthcare or education or even some more specific issues like domestic and family violence or immigration, that sort of stuff. So in my classes, we just come in and we talk about that and we think about, is there a better way for us to do this? Can we bring a social work lens to that? And yeah, usually it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And I know that a lot of what you do is think about how we conceptualise problems uh, within social policy. And a lot's been, I suppose, thought about in terms of how we conceptualise children and children's mental health over the past decades. Can you tell me a little bit about how you think that's evolved and and what's important in terms of how we conceptualise our um, work with children? Yeah, great question. The bit about problems is really interesting because that's the kind of language we use in this social policy approach, but it sounds really negative as well, doesn't it? You know, usually we try and, when we're working with young people, take a sort of strengths-based approach. But the idea of problems is just kind of acknowledging that we think about issues in a particular way. So you know, how do we approach any given social issue and how do we think about that and that kind of shapes how we're going to respond to it. So when we're thinking about children and young people, traditionally we've thought about them as kind of passive, people who perhaps aren't quite adult yet, you know, they're not quite old enough or intelligent enough or something to really kind of think about issues and problems. And so my challenge in my topic is to say, well, maybe there's other ways of thinking about these issues, other ways of problematizing or shape, shaping the problems. And so I think you, you're asking, like, how do we thought about children and young people? It's got a bit of a long history and I'll do a kind of a really short snapshot without getting too boring. But largely we've thought about children and young people as just, as just passive and, and unable to think about issues and even in in research sometimes we've gone to talk to adult proxies instead of children and young people themselves we want to hear about children and young people but we go talk to their parents or their teacher or a doctor instead of talking to them directly but thankfully there's a bit of a shift in that because i think it's really important to actually listen to the voices of young people themselves and treat them as experts in their own lives and there's a kind of classic article in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child that sort of says young people and children should have a voice in things that affect their lives. So that's a really good kind of starting point for thinking about how do we approach problems in young people's lives? Well, maybe they're important and their voice is important in what they have to say. There's kind of some interesting moves that happened since then. So that idea of participation in decisions that affect their lives is really important, but there's some shifts that happened after that around perhaps thinking ideas like citizenship. Do we think of children and young people as 
citizens, like holding rights or they've got you know, partial rights and responsibilities. There's a shift that kind of comes after that in a lot of the thinking about it towards civic engagement, which is kind of this strange term, but it's, it almost tries to speak to how do we prepare young people and children to have an influence around decision-making things. But that also has this other side to it, which is kind of suggesting that young people aren't prepared, right, and we kind of have to train them and educate them. So there's lots of ways which these thoughts about children and young people can encourage us to include them, but also ways of excluding them. And those exclusionary things are really interesting part of my research. Like that's what I'm interested in. How do we exclude young people from decision making? As a little bit of work I've done some writing recently, looking at things like young people's protest, when young people were involved in things like climate strike movements, and how their their voices in those spaces actually kind of keep getting disqualified. Uh, there are things like thinking about students and young people as kind of just puppets of, of other people's agenda or thinking about them as perhaps indoctrinated. You know, these are the kind of language that we use to discount their voices. But I'm really interested in saying that young people can be really important leaders in this space as well. Yeah, because there are some quite profound effects uh, throughout history, really, of the effects of this exclusionary way or passive way of thinking about children, which obviously in recent times have been connected to the way we view children's rights. Do you want to talk a little bit about that in your own research? Sure, yeah, how they've been excluded and the effects on that. Yeah, look, if we treat young people as not capable, we start with that way of thinking, then we can end up creating kind of policies or programs or practice because part of my my background as well as a youth work practitioner prior to getting into academia that has really sort of strange effects on young people's lives. So one of the things I'm interested in at the moment is young people's experiences of bullying in school and my uh, broader kind of interests are around violence but less from a way of thinking about it that identifies risk and resiliency factors in young people, thinking about the things that we might want to change to improve their lives as as being the young person themselves, to thinking about perhaps the places that they inhabit, where do they live and exist. So if we're thinking about school bullying, why don't we think about the school? What is it about the school that makes bullying more likely to happen or perhaps legitimises or sanctions it at times? So if we start with adult perspectives on things we kind of have a range of assumptions that come along with that with where the problem is and if we start with the young person centered one we might find something a little bit different so my research recently on bullying uh, looked at this dominant way of thinking about it's been around for about 30 years a guy by the name of Olius came up with a definition of bullying and we kind of still use the same one and it talks about a repetition bullying has to be repeated there has to be some sort of power imbalance in there as well and there's a third category of his name, which I'm struggling to remember on the spot, <laughs> but there was a third thing. Uh, anyway, so he has this definition and has kind of kept going for about 30 years, but recently people have been questioning a bit and saying, is this really what bullying looks like? Because sometimes there's some strange results we get if we take this definition of bullying and we go to talk to children about it. Uh, there's some research that shows that children don't identify these, these factors of bullying, like repetition and power imbalance and that sort of stuff. And so, well, what do you do with that? You know, if you've got this definition of bullying and young people aren't recognising it, how do we fix that problem? Well, the solution seems to be that we educate them better, right? We teach young people what bullying is. Okay, that's, that's maybe one solution, but that's starting with this adult assumption of what bullying is. Another way of looking at the data is to say, well, what are young people actually worried about, what children worried about? And it seems that they mixed bullying in with a whole range of other harmful negative behaviours. Maybe they're just interested 
worried about harmful and negative behaviors. Maybe they just want to have a good time at school and it doesn't matter whether we call it bullying or if it's harassment or if it's just fighting or if it's something else. Maybe what's important is, is the harm bit. So, yeah, if we start without our assumptions, I think we end up potentially approaching problems in ways that don't make sense for the young people. Yeah, it's really fascinating, Ben. One of the things that we've been interested in at Emerging Minds is changing practitioners' perspective shifts. And one of those main perspective shifts has been from a passive understanding of children to an active understanding of children. And that's really how when you're in front of them in a professional engagement, how do you ask them questions around their preferences, know-how, strengths, rather than implying that adults are the font of all wisdom uh, within the room. And this certainly kind of what you're talking about resonates now. When you're working with young social workers or social work undergraduates, how do you kind of work to instill this questioning within them to think about how children have been excluded from practice or policy in the past and um, to help them much more aware of what children can contribute? My way of doing that is probably a couple of different things. One is making them aware of some of the things that we've already talked about, like the Convention on Rights of the Child and ways and values of giving them options to have a say and participate and have an influence over decisions. So you're kind of giving them some sort of frame of reference for the conversation. So that's really important. But the other part of it, I think, is giving people an experience of what that's like. So if I want people to, as practitioners to engage with others as equals, so engage with children as equals, to bring them into a conversation, I have to kind of embody that in my teaching as well. Right? So it's easy as a teacher, as a lecturer to go, oh, I've got all the knowledge and I've just got to kind of give that to you. And that's the kind of traditional model of teaching, I suppose, that lots of people might have experienced at school. There's a description of that as the banking model of education. So I, I deposit knowledge in your mind and then you kind of regurgitate that back to me later in some sort of assessment. But that's really a limited way of thinking about what education can be but also it's kind of antithetical to the practice that we want them to do. So instead of, instead of doing that, I try and create spaces in education that have that democratic dialogue between equals involved and the students can be at the centre of the learning experience rather than me as the expert. And then hopefully that's whilst we're talking about the idea of putting young people and children at the centre and giving them control, we're also doing that in our teaching. That's kind of the two approaches that I have. Yeah, that's great, Ben. And then taking that a step further, what can social workers do when they're practising with children to really be centering children's wisdom and their preferences and what they know, particularly when talking about their social and emotional wellbeing or their mental health? Great question. There's some really good research around this and there's probably a couple of really great frameworks that I'll point to. There's one that's called Hart's Ladder of Participation, which people have probably heard of before, and it has this a really great description of different levels of participation and ownership over the process that children and young people can have and some great principles in there for us to think through. You know, At the very top of the ladder, it talks about how we can create ways for child-initiated decision-making. So rather than adults coming in and saying, I want to talk about this with you, what are the young people and children already talking about? How do we join in on that? So that's a really interesting and challenging idea. I think particularly for service delivery that is so often adults started, right? Like how, do, how does a service begin? Well, it usually begins because it kind of linked back to social policy. Somebody identified a problem somewhere in a policy setting and said, we're going to fund this service. 
So immediately that's it's an adult-led decision, isn't it? So we want to deliver this service to young people and that's setting the conversation up in the agenda already. So maybe that's just a reality you have to work with. So how do we actually then turn that around when we're working with a, a child or a young person? And I will point to actually a recent podcast that I did uh, with an interview with a colleague of mine. Her name's Camilla Bastian and she's been doing some great research about child centres practice in child protection which is so funny because you'd think child protection, right, it, it's got to be child-centred, surely. Yeah, that's what it's all about. But her research showed that it's actually quite difficult to balance the desires of the child in there alongside the institutional requirements of keeping children safe. Uh, so there's some great techniques and uh, ways of thinking, again, about the problem of child protection through different kinds of knowledges. And she, she talks about you know, kind of your child protection practices as well as your, your knowledge of... You know, adolescent and psychological development theory but alongside that is practice wisdom she says that over time practitioners learn what's going to actually work in a conversation and that can be as simple as i just sit with you in a room and try and talk about this it's probably not going to work and the child or young person is just not going to be interested but what if we go and get some food together or one of the things i used to love doing is go for a drive and you know just sitting in a car with the young person and we're going somewhere and it changes the orientation of you physically, but also somehow the conversation. You've got this other journey destination that you're going to and you have a conversation about so many amazing things that perhaps are less focused on the agenda that I have as an adult and more spontaneous in the space. So yeah, there's some of the things I think about. Yeah, that's great, Ben. And then thinking about how to privilege a child's voice or to make them more active within a social work context how do you then extend that to your work with whole of families where maybe a parent is, is accompanying their child to a, a session and parent might be feeling stressed or anxious about their ability to provide the level of support that their child needs or at their wits end? How do you make sure that you're both child focused but not providing a punitive response to adults in the room? That's a really great question and a really hard one. <laughs> I almost have to make a bit of a confession at this point. I'm not actually a social worker in the sense that I don't have a social work degree. Right? So I'm part of the social work program and I teach knowledge and experience and ideas around social work, but I'm actually a youth worker. And so my background as youth work brings a certain orientation and ethical framework to it where youth workers, and this is part of what makes them distinct from other kind of social and community care workers, have the young person as the primary client. So we see them as our sole responsibility is actually not to manage the multiple demands that other professionals might, but we have to be interested in the young person first. And part of that is built on a theory and a philosophy that young people are inherently excluded from decision-making and from society because of their age, and therefore they need somebody who's not need in, the, in a really kind of negative sense, but it's, it's beneficial for there to be somebody who's oriented mainly towards them. So that's really hard. And I was thinking about how's this worked out in practice for me sometimes. And I, there's one story that really comes to mind. I was working with a young person who's new to our service and I was having a conversation with him, which was going reasonably well. And then after, after the session, we got a call from his mum and mum just wanted to have a bit of an insight into what we're up to. So within the framework that I've described of having a primary client, I tried to give her some details, but also give a little bit of clarity that, you know, there's actually a little bit of need for me to have confidentiality here. 
Otherwise, you know, your son just won't trust me. We can't have meaningful conversations about things. And she seemed to understand that, which was great. But clearly she went and had a chat with her son afterwards because <laughs> the next time he came in, he didn't talk to me. He actually said, you talk to my mum. I don't want to talk to you anymore. And it was really awkward and we sat there for a long time in silence. And I sort of had blown that in a way. Now I thought I'd stuck as best as I could to my principles of that, but clearly for that young person uh, there wasn't a level of trust there anymore that made it safe to him for him to have any further conversations. So, so how do you do that? I don't know. Like It's really tough, right? And perhaps part of it is having those really open conversations at the start and saying, well, this is what my job is. Uh, these are what I can talk about and this is what I can't talk about and here's some ways that I can support you. So that's really important. The only other part of that I'd put is youth worker's job is to have the personal relationship with the young person but also care about their social context. So you still have to think about the family that they're part of, uh, that the community they're part of, the society that we're part of. And so there still is a responsibility to work alongside those other members of that community as well. So it's not a really straightforward answer, but it sort of is complex. Very interesting one though. Thanks, Ben. But I suppose thinking about the young person or the child's ecology, as you've just described there, has really been heightened within social work uh, practice or youth work practice over the past decades where, you know, more traditional practice, you were um, assessing the individual deficits or the problems within a child or a young person. How do you think practice has changed, hopefully for, for the better, in terms of thinking about the whole child or the whole young person? Yeah, great question. I think there is lots of positive shifts around that and there is a part of this conversation like around problems that we're talking about and the policy approach that we have in my topics is to say you know, where is that problem located is it located in a person or perhaps it's in their ecology or perhaps it's in our society and perhaps that can be the focus of our change instead and i think that's really great and that's that's where a lot of my research interest is in as well is less about that individual and more about their context but I also see there's a pushback on that. Like I think it's also really hard for that focus to be maintained in practice purely because of things like uh, funding models and the arrangement or the way in which services are delivered. So you have a funded service of some sort. It's likely to be government-funded if you're working with, with children and young people. There's some great philanthropy kind of going around the place as well, but that's, there's a large part of it is kind of sourced through, if not government-funded, some sort of competitive tendering or grant-funded way of funding a service. And that, I think, has an inherent bias towards individual solutions and short-term outcomes to things. Uh, that's not anybody's personal fault. That's just kind of how you win a grant or how you demonstrate your outcomes or how you compete against other services to do similar things. So I think that kind of directs us, unfortunately, back towards trying to change people rather than looking at the ecology and the systems around them. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Given your intensive research into social policy and particularly how it includes or excludes children and young people, where do you think some of our opportunities lie for change over the next decade? So if I was interviewing you in another 10 years, where would you like to have seen changes being made? Great question. Wow, that's a really hard one to answer and, and to think about on the spot. But I think any opportunity for us to really give the people who are the focus of our work more voice in the conversation is really, really important and valuable. And in the research that I'm part of and seeing it being done, that is an increased focus. So you have 
people with lived experience being prioritised in the process. Um, and I mean that not just in the sense of like we're talking to those people and hearing from them, but even more in the kind of design and planning stages of projects. So you've got people having input that's saying we should talk about this. This is the thing that we should have a focus on rather than me as the researcher generating the idea of what we should talk about. Or you've got groups who are focus groups or you know, advisory groups who you then go to and say, okay, this is the process that we think we want to use. Is this in line with with what you want to do? So there's a lot of that valuing of lived experience and the, the target group throughout the, the process, which I think shifts our direction right from the start because we've got a different kind of evidence base that comes out of that. So therefore, practice is different as well. So if we can continue to prioritise that, I think that gives us a lot of hope for where services and research will go. I think that presents a lot of challenges as well, though, right? Like when, you, when you're setting up an organisation, it's really hard to prioritise those groups as part of the structure of your organisation, like really embedding them. That's not efficient. That makes it really hard. Often we don't know how to make sense of the value that those groups bring outside of our usual measures of competence. So I've read some research lately that kind of looked at things like a program that wanted to address relationship violence amongst young people because there's quite a bit of evidence around that. Uh, that's a fairly significant concern in Australia that there is a lot of relationship violence going on. And so this program designed a peer-led intervention education program. And it was peer-led to the point of not just the facilitators doing the education, but the young people designed the education and they actually also were the employees of the organisation and they were kind of like this board of advisory group as well. Uh, so this the NGO existed, but they kind of set up this separate little entity within it, which is entirely young people led and run. And it was great. The young people involved and the research said that they loved it, they really enjoyed the experience, that it was really valuable, that they felt empowered through it. But the other part of the research also showed that the professionals in the space were still not convinced by it. You know, they were still like, oh, they're not really very good at project management. They're not really following the right processes at times. Well, yeah, of course they're not because they're not, they're not professionals. But are we willing to give some of those things up so that we can have those voices more central? Do you think that maybe sometimes it's that we don't like the answers that we receive when we <laughs> ask the questions? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Or even it's just kind of really personally and professionally challenging. Right? I've been I've invested a huge amount of time in getting to this point in my career. I'm not going to bring some young person in who could just do the same job with no training. Like <laughs> yeah. That's really hard to hear. But yeah, I think definitely sometimes we don't get the answers that we would expect. Yeah. I just want to go back to it for a second in some of the work you've done around exclusionary approaches to children or young people. Um, a lot of the work that we've done here at Emerging Minds has been focused around secrecy and how children or young people aren't encouraged to disclose some of the, the challenging things that have happened in their lives, either, as you mentioned, through violence or trauma or their own mental health. Um, what can we do in practice to ensure that we're more inclusive and we offer opportunities at every step for children and young people to have conversations around the um, matters that concern them. I had a really interesting experience just last night that I think relates exactly to what you're talking about. I was invited into uh, a group who have had a really full-on experience this week of sort of exposure to social justice issues and stuff and I was asked to come in and talk to them a little bit about what they could do with that next. You know, 
what do you do now? You've had this experience. And they're high school students and they're kind of making sense of it, which is great. But part of the activity that I did with them was allow them to use a web-based platform where they could offer anonymous reflections on their experience for that week. And again, anonymous kind of feedback on, on what um, they were thinking at the time. And as you, you might expect for a group of teenagers, we got some unexpected results on the screen. Uh, so this is where they would give anonymous feedback and it would instantly go up on a projector and so everyone gets to read it. We didn't get any swear words or anything like that, but we got a few clearly like running jokes in the group or random things that they wanted to put up there or you know things that maybe some people might get a little bit offended by uh, got put up on the screen as well. And I think that was really interesting outcome for me because – I'm not particularly bothered by the jokes and things that they put up there. In fact, some of them were actually quite funny. But there were also some very honest things in there like I'm bored or I've done this week and I'm not inspired. And that's actually really important kind of feedback. And if we don't create spaces where people can be that honest, then you don't get that feedback. And so you don't get to hear what's really going on in young people's lives. So I think the challenge is for us to be taking that risk and to be okay with the discomfort of finding out things that we might not have wanted to know or expected or perhaps aren't relevant like we, we wanted to. So I think the challenge is how do we create honest spaces? How do we create safe spaces for people to do that? Yeah, that really resonates. Um, a lot of what we hear from practitioners, Ben, is that um, I don't want to ask the question of a child or a young person because I don't want to open up a can of worms. That is a, is a real fear for lots sure. of practitioners. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, how do we support practitioners to be happy to ask the question in a supportive and safe way yeah. um, but also to hear you know honest answers great question i mean you never want to encourage people to go somewhere they're not prepared for so that's important to know your boundaries and know what you can respond to and know when you need to get help or refer um, i think i work with community services and particularly with children and young people is really quite dangerous if you're doing it on your own like in any context, you know, I'm, I'm never the expert on everything, so I should always be part of a, a group of support. So that would be my first thing, I think. Definitely make sure you have your networks of support around. But I also think if you're asking questions and creating spaces, then you're only ever going to go places that the child or the young person wants to. And that's actually kind of the most important thing. They might open a can of worms, Imagine if we hadn't opened that can of worms and the young person really wants to talk about that and it's really important in their lives, we could end up with a much worse situation. So I'd, I'd never encourage people to kind of force a conversation and go somewhere that they think is really important because that can be really damaging. Like you can be re-traumatizing people. But if you're asking questions, you're opening spaces, you're giving a chance for them to talk about what's important to them, that might be personally challenging and it might professionally require you to take action. Uh, but I think it's really important for young people and children to have that opportunity. Mm. And in your experience, are, are children and young people often making good decisions around who they choose to disclose information to or who, who they choose to talk with things about? Maybe. Maybe not as well. I think about as an adult, I don't always make the best decision about who to talk to something about. But I think it's important to have spaces for them to talk about it. Right? And if you are going to be a professional in this space, then you should be a safe person for them to talk to about it. Um, I also, you know, like we've talked about as well, we have this orientation to see young people as capable in the first instance rather than seeing them as passive or incapable. So if they want to talk about something, I try to approach it as saying, well, you are able to make some sense 
probably better sense than me of your experience. And so if we start from that, then I can try and bring supports in it as we need. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we always make good decisions. I think that's almost part of the thing, right? We're here because people don't always make good decisions. Yeah. Another perspective shift at Emerging Minds we talk about is this idea of thinking about children as knowledgeable rather than naive and a lot of what you're saying is resonating in terms of really having that basic assumption that children and young people, although it might take some support for them to be able to articulate, have a sense of what they think about the world and what their experiences have meant and what their preferred outcomes are. Yeah, absolutely. And the ways that children and young people choose to communicate are likely to be different to ours. So we may not always understand fully or appreciate exactly what they're saying, but that doesn't mean that their way of thinking and communicating isn't important. I think if we think about the ideas that children and young people have as a different but equally valuable form of knowledge or information, so they know their lives and experience better than, than we do, I barely remember what it's like to be a child or young person myself. So my constant challenge is to go, don't assume that that makes sense. And that is very real to me in my current job as well, where I get to talk about youth, right, as a theory, as a, as a bit of research. And I'm often talking about youth to young people. And <laughs> so I'm teaching them about this idea that they're living. Well, what right do I have to do that? Uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense at, at that level. I should have a level of awareness about my distance from that lived experience that they have now. So how do, yeah, how do we give them a space to bring their knowledges and their experience to the, the centre of the conversation? Thanks, Ben. It's been great. so great talking to you today. I mean, I think part of what you've been talking about is this ethical striving that is very apparent in your work with social workers, in your research, but also in terms of how you'd like social workers to be able to practice in terms of striving for that inclusion wherever and however possible. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, definitely sort of an ethical orientation that's embedded there. And and I love thinking about then the implications of that, you know, how does our society and our attitudes towards young people are a result of kind of our assumptions around uh, their value and their role in that broader social context. Ben, it's been so fascinating talking to you today. Really, thank you for your time. And yeah, I hope the listeners enjoyed. Thank you. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds. The National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.